Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, best friend to dogs and kitty cats listening on Peconic Public Broadcasting in the Hamptons, on Robin Hood Radio in Connecticut and the Berkshires, and by podcast everywhere else. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top pet experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litters, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, the Animal Specialty Center in Westchester, New York, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a family-owned company that makes their canned foods in a human food facility because they believe our pets deserve to eat as well as we do. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands, are made to appeal to finicky little dogs and choosy cats, especially those who are trying to transition away from unhealthy dry foods. The Waruva family chooses not to make any dry food because cats are obligate carnivores and they believe that for optimal health, they should eat only meat. Today I have two guests for you because I want to read you a letter from someone who wrote me a very long and thoughtful and I think important letter about the issue of adopting from the South. So after I do that, you're going to hear with me from Tim Cope, who wrote an amazing, gigantic book about an amazing adventure called On the Trail of Genghis Khan on Horseback with a Dog. And then Dr. Elizabeth Hodgkins, one of my favorite co-conspirators in the educational world, we're going to talk about why and how it is that cats are second-class citizens in our society. But first, I want to start with this letter. This letter is from Sally, and she is referring to a show that, that I did sometime, several weeks ago, not all that long ago, about dogs from the South and saying that there were rescues and shelters in the South that were in the business of using middlemen who were making a profit transporting these dogs. And there just seemed to be something, suspicious is really not the right word, but something wrong or wrongly organized in how people are making $150 per dog to move them from shelters and rescues in the South, often whole litters of puppies for which the North has now created a, a demand because we have so many more spayed and neutered dogs in the Northeast and therefore fewer puppies available. And the question was simply to really stop and figure out how did your dog get there? Why did your dog get there? And that a lot of these dogs are also incredibly ill. Many have parvo, many have heartworm, um, and the and what that entails for the person adopting them or the community at large in the Northeast when they arrive. So here's this really thoughtful and interesting letter that, that I think looks at things from another point of view. And it's I'm most pleased to be able to read it and talk about it because I in no way meant that dogs from the South are not good dogs and not, not valuable dogs and not dogs very worthy and needing of an adoptive home. It was really more to look at an industry that has grown up around them, if you will. In fact, my social media manager, who does such a great job for me on Facebook and Twitter and so forth, both of her dogs are adopted from Westchester, New York, uh, rescues, and these dogs had come from the South. And she, when she heard that show, she was like, but I love my dogs. They're wonderful and they're from the South. Well, let's just keep in mind, we all love our dogs. And many of us, like me, have dogs that came from a pet store. Now, you know perfectly well, I didn't buy them from a pet store, but two of them had pet store papers. One 
was from the UKC, as it's called, the United Kennel Club, which is about as valuable a piece of paper as the AKC, the American Kennel Club, both of which um, give these papers to dogs that come from puppy mills. And many Weimaraners, which is the breed that, that I choose to rescue, are discarded after six months, but they started out in a puppy mill in some horrible mass production of dog facility where their parents are either mercifully dead or still pumping out puppies at a high rate without any regard to genetic health um, or the health of the parents. So, of course, many wonderful dogs have come from the South. It isn't to say that they aren't great dogs. They're all great dogs. We just have to look at the whole global picture of where are our adopted dogs coming from and, and what are we doing to make that situation better. So here's the letter from Sally. Thanks for another great episode of Dog Talk. I really appreciate your willingness to take on the issue of no-kill shelters and adopting from the South. I hope you'll continue to explore these topics in future shows. When living in Connecticut, I adopted my second of two dogs, Maury, from a rural Georgia shelter. I found him through the shelter's listing on PetFinder. There was just something about his picture. I knew he was my dog. People say this, arg, it's true, but it really is true. I knew it. It so happened this municipal shelter was a couple of hours from my parents' home, also in Georgia, so I made the trip of it 12 hours each way and adopted him in person. I figured if I'm welcoming a new family member into my life for the next 13 to 16 years, the very least I can do is drive 24 hours round trip. The moral of my story is visiting the shelter your dog comes from is extremely important, more important than you'd ever guess. For me, visiting the shelter that housed Maury, walking back through the kennels and seeing the situation for dogs there was so extremely important. This was a shelter staffed by incarcerated men who may or may not have a fondness for animals and a shelter with extremely scarce resources. I've since learned this is not uncommon. Seeing the conditions of this shelter was important to me in two respects. It helped me to truly understand where Maury had been for a few months before I adopted him, and it helped me to recalibrate my view of rescue. Before actually seeing that situation, I probably would have been among those who feel that kill shelters are cruel. Not anymore. There were six to ten dogs per small kennel, intact males and females living together. There was one dog who clearly had a broken leg, but was just mixed in with this general population. The smell is what I remember most. As I was leaving with Maury, whose coat had patches of crust consisting of God knows what, the person at the front said, We'll give him a bath, all right? It's standard procedure. I wish I'd declined, but I was so shell-shocked, I said, okay. Maury was taken somewhere and came back to me in eight minutes, freezing cold and completely wet. Apparently, a bath entailed being sprayed down with a hose of cold water. It was late November and about 30 degrees Fahrenheit outside. The shelter staff gave me a certificate for a $5 rabies vaccination at the vet less than a mile up the road. So I went there, and the vet thankfully did not simply give the vaccine and push us off. Rather, he gave Maury a physical exam, and he had a temperature of 106 Fahrenheit. The vet asked if I could spend another $75 on this visit. I sensed that the expected response was not, and I said, of course, yes. So they did some in-house blood work, which revealed a white blood count through the roof. This dog was so sick, pneumonia-like symptoms as well. The vet didn't want to give him the rabies vaccination. Instead, he got antibiotics and an anti-fever medicine. I then checked into the Red Roof Inn, fed Maury three cans of salmon, saw my parents briefly, and then headed back to Connecticut, where I took Maury to our regular vet. And by then, he was doing much better. He got his rabies shot and since then has received the best possible care. Currently, he's a healthy, energetic six-year-old dog. He's taken Ralio and agility classes and is now enjoying learning tri-ball. 
and he's my best friend. If you've read this far, thank you. I shared my story just to emphasize that it's possible to adopt a great dog from the South. In any rescue situation, regardless of geography, I'd argue that it's good to see where your prospective dog comes from. That might be someone's home or it might be a shelter. Whatever the situation, I'm strongly convinced that prospective owners should see where the dog slept for the past month or so. Adopting a dog from a semi-trailer in a Walmart parking lot is a recipe for disaster. One would hope that's common sense, but apparently it's not. In my opinion, adopting from the South isn't always a bad thing. For me, it was absolutely instrumental in letting me find my best friend and opening my eyes about the situation in poor municipal shelters. I've since moved from Connecticut to Georgia, and yes, it's a different world here with respect to dog rescue. I hope that in future shows, you'll feature the coordinator of an excellent rescue group in the South, of which there are many. They may face distinct challenges compared to excellent rescue groups in the North. For instance, how do excellent Southern rescue groups view Northern shelters that adopt whole litters? Interesting and difficult questions, which I think it would be a great conversation for your show. I so love and respect your work, Tracy. Please keep it up. Well, I'm obviously incredibly indebted to Sally for taking the time to so articulately and passionately and compassionately write about what these situations were like. I think her point is brilliant, so well taken. Before Southampton Shelter existed, it is, as you know, the official shelter of the show, and it was financed in part with an enormous personal donation from someone who loves dogs and cats very much in Southampton. The shelter for the east end of Long Island was in East Quag. And my trainer at the time, Amy Sadler, who is now the, the, the head trainer at Southampton Shelter, she worked there. And she rang up and said, a, a six-month-old Weimaraner has come into the shelter. I'm going to put your name on him, as it were. He, she had known me back in California when I had adopted my first Weimaraners from Friends for Pets in Sunland, California. And Amy's very first training dog had been Lulu, the first Weimaraner I got. So I dashed out to this shelter in East Quag, bringing with me my other two dogs, which were a 100-pound Rottweiler, Yogi Bear, and um, an 85-pound Blue Weimaraner called Billy Blue, who was the one from California, so that they could all meet on somewhat neutral territory. And I must tell you, I will never forget what that shelter was like. It was horrific. It reminded me of why people are so afraid to go to a shelter and adopt, because they'll have a mental image, which is what Sally is saying we need, of what that place looked like. It was small and dank and smelly and wet. There were I maybe eight runs, I'd say, and I remember going in and they were cement and they either had been recently hosed down, but they were dripping wet and it was tight and crowded and there were chew marks on kind of wooden barriers. And, and when what turned out to be Scooby-Doo came out, he was trembling and scared and he'd been there, in there with a bunch of dogs and he'd been there not very long at all, in his case, just a number of days. But I think that it, it is really important to have some sense of where your dog comes from. And it doesn't really matter if it's south or north or for the matter east, because further west in Long Island, my, my current dog trainer, who's the official trainer of the show, Allison Denley, she intervened in a house situation in which the owner had substance abuse problems and would black out for long periods of time. And Allison had been called in because the older Weimaraner living in this house was attacking young Teddy, whose name was not then Teddy, who was crated most of the time. He never went outside. He was in a crate that sometimes he apparently could get open. And when he did, he ate the furniture. Apparently, there were two or three pieces of what used to be very expensive furniture that had been chewed down to nothing. Half of the sofa was gone in an armchair. And the house reeked of feces and urine. 
and it was at one time had been an affluent person whose life had come completely unraveled. And when this then seven-month-old puppy, Weimaraner, tried to play with the older Weimaraner, who was very ill and um, clearly ill, he would attack him, and then the young puppy needed to be stitched up. So I took him immediately on hearing this situation, only to learn immediately that he was not uh, house-trained. I was told that. Now, with a dog door and two other dogs to show him the way, he had one accident in the house, period, and that was it. And he'd never been house-trained. He'd never been leash-walked. He'd never been anything. Had never learned anything at all, didn't interact with other dogs or people. He lived in this horrible situation. And he's the best-adjusted, happiest, most easygoing, loving, wonderful boy. And yet we knew he had this horrible beginning. So I want to thank Sally for this letter and say all of us need to know where our puppies come from and where our dogs come from when we adopt them. And it doesn't matter if it's east, south, west, or north. All, of, all that matters is that we inform ourselves and pay testimony and witness to where these dogs come from so we can understand better how they fit into our lives. I'll be right back after this quick word with Tim and his amazing Trail of Genghis Khan. I'll be right back. Support for Dog Talk comes from the Animal Specialty Center in Yonkers, just north of New York City. ASC is a comprehensive veterinary facility with around-the-clock emergency care and specialist veterinarians who work as a team to help your own veterinarian manage a pet's challenging medical condition. At the Animal Specialty Center, there are board-certified specialists in oncology, cardiology, dermatology, neurology, surgery, internal medicine, and dentistry. Doctors who work together using innovative tools to diagnose and treat the four-legged members of your family using state-of-the-art medical options. This show is also supported by Platinum Performance Comprehensive Nutritional Supplements, which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people too. I am here with Tim Cope, who has written a book on the trail of Genghis Khan, an epic journey through the land of the nomads. And I have to say this man is himself quite the nomad. Tim Cope, I am so excited to meet you. It's so strange to be talking to you in a hotel room in the United States. I feel like I should be reaching you by some kind of satellite telephone on the top of some a remote mountain. Are you have do you have culture shock when you wind up in a hotel room on a telephone? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, it's, it's much more difficult returning to this world than it ever was to adapt to life on the step. And of course, by that I'm, I'm referring to uh, the journey that I undertook for three and a half years by, by horse uh, from Mongolia to Hungary with, of course, my, my canine companion. And your, and your equine companions. You know, I, I, so people get the sense of this book. It's a big, fat, beautiful book. And when it first came... I thought, oh, they've accidentally sent me a book that doesn't have anything to do with dogs or cats. But God, I can't wait to read it. It'll just, it's a beauty for my library. And then on the back, I see, oh, hang on, there is a dog in this. And there's very much a dog in it. I mean, and there's so much else in it. But the, the size of the book is sort of equivalent to the size of your journey. And when you say it's harder to cope with the modern world, I think we all are kind of overwhelmed by the modern world and all that it has to offer and detract from. But I have no idea how you could possibly so easily relate to the life that you embraced having for three and a half years in these harsh, harsh, harsh conditions. Your girlfriend even went with you on the, on the early part of it. 
Do you see yourself as someone in that long line of British, Australian adventurers, explorers, even like a Shackleton, where the physical demands were part of what you embraced and liked, as opposed to me, I was really like, oh my God, it's so cold. Oh, geez, they now they've run out of water. Oh, there's nothing for the horses to eat. Oh my God, well, now what? Was that all to you like, oh good, a new challenge? Um, look, look, I think it was partly that, but the spark for this journey occurred when I was 21 and I was riding my bicycle with my friend Chris across Russia and Siberia uh, to Beijing. This was back in 2000. And for me, uh, at that time, riding a bike, um, exploring was a way of branching off from a conventional path in life. Yes. Um, leaving my law degree behind, pursuing adventure. And then suddenly we arrived in Mongolia where these incredible horsemen and horsewomen would just appear from nowhere. They'd come over and they'd say hello on their horse, come galloping with their, their big cloaks known as devils flaming in the wind. They'd tap us on the shoulder and then sail off, it seemed, to wherever they wanted. And it struck me that they live in a world where there are no fences for thousands of miles. There's no such thing as private property as nomads, they move with the seasons with little more than a couple of inches of, of, of felt yes. in their tents, insulating them from the environment. And I guess it kind of it sparked in me this childhood craving for true freedom, that these people lived in symbiosis with the nature, the environment, and it left me wanting to know more about who they were, <coughs> who they were what their life was like in these vast oceanic spaces and... For me, the only way to do that and understand who the nomads were and the Mongols were under Genghis Khan, of course, rode, out, rode from East Asia and created the largest land empire ever been, uh, was for me to, to get on a horse and ride myself <laughs> from Mongolia to Hungary. And so, in a way, um, I didn't go out to seek challenge and seek physical discomfort, um, but there was really no, no question for me that I was prepared to go through that to to kind of um, fulfill my um, seeking of curiosity of, um, of of discovering this place that for me had been more of a myth than a than a reality growing up as a as a kid in Australia. Well, for most of us in the United States, we don't. I mean, maybe there's historians amongst us that that understand who Genghis Khan was or what you know the Mongolian steppes might be like, but it. It's so harsh. I mean, the places that you were were physically so harsh and so brutal. And I think what came across to me was this this historical sense of, wow, man and horse and man and dog really did need each other. There was a long period of time in everyone's history, everyone's history, where they were inextricably bound up. Of course, the, the most startling thing to me at least, as a, as a former equestrian, is that you didn't know anything about horses, Tim. You'd been on one once in your life, and you're about to go off into the middle of beyond nowhere. It's, this is, nowhere doesn't apply. I mean, people have to understand, this is be, reading this book takes the idea of armchair tourism or armchair travel to a completely, it's sort of like that movie uh, Gravity where, oh gosh, is this what space looks like? Wow, this must be what space feels like. And your book is, oh my God, it's like another planet. But there you are, you're the captain of a ship, and you don't know one side of the horse from the other. That, and you were you were a mature person, very smart. You had a law degree. 
why didn't you worry as I would have, well, God, I don't really know how to ride them. And what about taking care of them? And if, what if they go lame? And then you had these shoes put on them. And I thought, well, that's all well and good. But how do you take care of the shoes in the middle of nowhere for three and a half years? Did those things not worry you? Or are you the kind of man who says, I'll just sort it out as it comes along? <laughs> I think I was, uh, I was certainly very worried. And it's, uh, when I first arrived, I'll, I'll never forget the first day when we'd been um, preparing to depart from this town called Hadahoran, uh, which is actually the old empire capital of the Mong- of, of the, the Mongols set up since the, in the 13th century. And uh, I got this horse um, ready. We were all packed. I'd spent 18 months planning, researching, etc. And this big crowd of Mongolians had arrived to see off this wondrous journey. <laughs> and in fact, <laughs> the horse was spinning around in circles. I managed to get in the saddle, but... I fell forward, my head was in the, buried in the mane, my bum was up. And <laughs> I, I, I managed to get out of the saddle safely, and I think it was the first journey ever made from Mongolia to Hungary by horse uh, that was actually on foot. I ended up leading the horses out of town. and uh, look, With your tail between your uh, legs somewhat, right? Absolutely. But, of um, course, the additional think, thing that you... The, uh, sorry to interrupt. The additional thing is they didn't even want to sell you, white man, any horses at all. They didn't think you were worthy of them. And not only did they not want to sell them to you, but when you had an intermediary purchase the three horses, some for pack, some for riding, then they got stolen like about 15 minutes later. Right? I mean, it's like, wow, talk about an inauspicious beginning. And there's no sense in reading the book that you said, you know, I was thinking, just go home, Tim. It's okay. It's okay, Tim. You could go home now. Nope, not at all. You went looking for your horses and eventually added a dog Tingo, which is a good thing, because then I began to understand, boy, dogs really had an important job. They weren't there just to eat our garbage, for heaven's sake. He really did, he was only a puppy when you got him, but he did serve as an early warning and as a protection, yes? Yes, I mean, on the fifth day of the journey already, I woke up in the middle of the night and two of my horses had been stolen. I leapt out of the tent and all I could find was this equine bell uh, that the vet in Australia had actually suggested that I put on the horses at night so that when the thieves approach at night, the bell would ring as the horses became nervous. Yes. I then leaped down the tent in time to rescue them. Of course, that wasn't the case. Uh, the sound of the bell had probably just led the thieves straight to my... <laughs> so <laughs> much for the vet in Australia or anything any of us in the non-Mongolian world might imagine would be helpful, right? I mean, how would we know what the culture is and what, the, what you would be facing? That's right. And I think my role as a traveller was very much to leave my excess baggage behind as a Westerner, as an Australian, yes, yes. and learn to see uh, life through these eyes. Because in the modern world, it's true that we can fly from one side of the world to the other in a day. But that plane ride does not bridge the cultural gap. And uh, being a traveller is, is an opportunity to be privy to a different way of thinking, a different relationship with the earth, a different culture altogether. And that morning, uh, my friend Sarah had told me that if you don't solve your problems in Mongolia before dawn, then you probably never will. And so I set off, I did have one of the three horses remaining. And miraculously, uh, a couple of hours right away, this great big herd came galloping over a hill, and and at the tail end of it were my horses. How did you recognize them? I didn't understand that in the book. How did you know in a giant galloping herd, having known your horses only a few days and not being much uh, of a horseman, and they probably all look alike? They were kind of a little bit separate on the tail end of it coming through, and... It was fairly obvious that they were mine. I, I knew them reasonably well. Okay. Um, but 
but this this herd had kind of came up and intimated, well, you must have tied your horses really badly because they came to him themselves. And he took me back to his home. He uh, feasted um, with me on fermented mare's milk. He slaughtered a goat. And he told me this wonderful Mongolian proverb, which is that a man on the step without friends is as narrow as a finger, and a man on the step with friends is as wide as a step. Now, what he didn't tell me at the time is that not only would I have to break out of my own little dream world to make friends and learn the local laws, but a man on the step with a dog is also as wide as a step. And about six months into the journey, I was travelling with a with a man called Asset, and we were travelling into the first winters of Kazakhstan. In fact, it would end up being one of the coldest winters in that corner of Kazakhstan for about 40 years. Of course and it would, right? This, um, and, and you didn't talk, I mean, how warm was your parka? Did you have some high-tech, amazing parka? You never, t Americans would be talking about their fabulous, you know, Patagonia something, but you didn't seem to focus much on, on what you had for your personal comfort. You, you talked more about what the Mongolians used, this, the felt and the way that they made that insulation from that kind of grass for their huts. Did you have incredible outerwear, underwear? Um, well, on the first few days of, of, of my riding with Asset, uh, he actually taught me the Russian word for hemorrhoids. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that was because I'd ne I neither had a cushion on the saddle of the horse and neither did I have an, a, a, a decent pair of, of trousers for winter. And so in the, next, in the nearest village that we could find, I ended up buying some old Soviet-era hunting breeches that oh, overalls that, that really helped me. So I, I used a combination of like um, high, reasonably high-tech down jackets and so forth. Um, I do I do have a background as a wilderness guide, and I had spent a lot of time in oh, cold cold regions. So <laughs> I guess a lot of the skills I had to put to the test on this journey, part of it was horse skills, but a lot of it was dealing with people um, and. I've been learning Russian language for about uh, 15 years, so being able to speak fluent Russian was, was key to this journey, Yes, um, among other things. But this guy I interrupted. So you were six months into the journey, and, you'd, and it was the coldest winter ever, and a set, and you were at the, at the, in this cold corner. And, and, he, um, and he, at the end of these 10 days of riding with me, he said to me, Tim, you definitely need a, a friend on this long road ahead. You need someone to keep you warm at night in the tent. And you definitely need someone to protect you from wolves. And that's when he, I uh, thought he was going to offer his own services, when, of course, he gave me Tiggin. And Tiggin was this uh, six-month uh, pup. Uh, he was uh, this little scrawny, bony thing that if he stood in front on in the grass, it was almost invisible. In fact, in the first <laughs> few days that I'd known Tiggin, he'd been leaping off the snow at the first opportunity during our breaks to, onto my shoulders just to get his paws out of the cold. And I didn't honestly think that this little runt would survive more than a couple of weeks in these conditions. But of course, Tiggin uh, grew into this uh, wonderful dog. He, like me, went through all his um, rites of passages as he grew into a, an adult. And in fact, he would end up r running for three years with me. And he probably covered, I don't know, uh, 10 or 15,000 miles <laughs> um, on this journey because I'd be riding with my three horses and He'd be constantly off in the distance, usually trying to track the scent of hares and foxes. Right. Covering uh, two or three times the distance that, that we were. And I couldn't have done it without Tiggin. We had all these special little routines, like in wintertime when I'd make camp, I'd open the, the canvas duffel bag up and put him inside uh, where he would stay warm while I unsettled the horses and set up the tent and so forth. And then 
as the dinner boil, this canvas bag would always begin to hop towards the, <laughs> the petrol stove. <laughs> and that was our cue for the night retreat, that was sharing a bit of uh, summer, which is salted pig fat. I just opened the zip and this little snout would come up. And I guess, you know, in this in this kind of environment, uh, and the steppes are these oceanic spaces of arid grasslands, deserts, mountains, life without animals simply wouldn't be possible. In fact, someone once told me, I think something that's very true, they said that life on the horse, on the steppe without a horse, it would be like being stuck on the ocean without a boat. Yes, um, yes. The horse has actually, the horse actually originates from the steppes of Eurasia. It was first domesticated in history by nomads on what's probably today northern Kazakhstan, southern Siberia. That was about five and a half thousand years ago. And so since that time, nomadic people have been migrating from one side of the steppe in Mongolia to the Danube and in the west and back and forth. And the Mongols, of course, are just one of many nomadic empires that had a big influence on, on Western society because, of course, they were the ones who originally brought the horse and horsemanship to Europe and they brought every bit of equipment you could imagine from the saddle to the stirrup to Europe as well. And in a kind of uh, strange way, Europeans adopted the horse. They even adopted light horsemanship after the Mongols invaded Europe and uh, cut down a lot of the, the European armies. Uh, it basically rendered the era of... The, the knight in heavy armour and the heavy horse obsolete and the Europeans adopted light horsemanship they took that to the New World, to Africa, to here in the United States, to Australia and they essentially the uh, they, they essentially used the horse to the same advantage over local populations as, as did Mongols for, for centuries um, over settled peoples and particularly in the open spaces uh, the horse gave them a wonderful advantage, for better or for worse, uh, for society, of course. And it's only a hundred years ago that the horse rem remained, um, until that time, the engine of our world. They were used for everything. That's industry, right. Transport. I mean, in a way, we do suffer a little bit from amnesia because we often think of horse societies as being backward and primitive. But... We've only been driving Fords for about a century. That's right. And, um, That's right. Uh, the horse has been, uh, together with the horse, um, humans have changed the world and kind of in partnership with them, uh, the world's, uh, the, the path of history has, has been written. Well, in fact, if you look at, at, the, at the play War Horse, it, it gave such a strong sense of... The, the way the the horses were repurposed from their everyday chores, which were essential to the the society, to going to war and being in this terrible jeopardy, and how many were slaughtered in that uh, in that out in that outpouring of horses, and and the idea that these horses that you were riding were the the progenitors of all those horses, and the experience you had was this really. Um, sort of seminal way of understanding how to navigate the world. And, and Mongolian horses are small and stocky. They're built for that landscape, if you will, right? I mean, they've, they've, mm -hmm. they've come about, they haven't evolved to look more like the horses that have become our thoroughbreds or our other things, even draft horses. They're really, they're sort of like, I understand, Shetland ponies 
or really the horses in the Shetland Islands because it's so cold and so windy that everything has to be small and close to the ground, sort of stocky and very furry and thick mane and thick tail and thick coat. I guess it's the same way. They're quite cl close to the ground, right? Yeah, I mean, they're about 13, 13 hands, uh, 12, 12 to 14 hands. A large um, pony in our, in our world. Yeah, yeah, although they aren't, they aren't a pony, um, they are a horse, but, but they have, like, I mean, every, every five or six years there's these uh, incredibly harsh winters that sweep across the steppe known as Zuds, and they traditionally wipe out millions of livestock. In 2010, uh, I think about a third of Mongolia's livestock were wiped out in a single winter. Wow. And so you have this process of natural selection where only the toughest horses will survive. They say that in a zood, when you get this, the ice, the land covering ice, um, often horses are naked come spring, those that survive, because they resort to eating the hair on each other's bodies as a, as a means of survival. Um, these, these are horses, however, um, that are, are very, very endurant and they can carry uh, a lot of weight. And yes. the Mongols use them successfully to travel over thousands and thousands of miles and they're one of the most famous, um, uh, I guess, strategies of the nomadic people would be to lure lure other armies into a into a false retreat, and they would they would lure them further and further back into the steppe, until these big heavy war horses from Europe um, were tired and yes. started to slow down, and that's when the Mongols would of course turn around and ambush them and cut them down, and the the the, the horses' uh, strength can't be underestimated. There are other things too that I travel for 10,000 kilometres, um, 6,000 miles, um, almost barefoot the, the entire way. I had them shod uh, three times during the, uh, maybe it's four times during the journey, but the vast majority of the, of the time they were going barefoot and there were no issues at all. I only had one horse go, one, go lame at one stage from a stone bruise um, with an abscess in its hoof. The, when we reached Europe and the farrier in, in the Crimea, I remember, was trying to sh to shoe them, he said to me, oh, Tim, these hooves are so good that you could boil a cup of tea in them. Oh, and my. Do another, do another, you know, 6,000 miles. I tell you, and Tim, it's, it's, we've run out of time, but the book is so amazing, and, and the dog really is your, your warmth at night and your protection in your eyes and your companionship, and it makes all of our canine companions seem sort of paltry by comparison, but it's a wonderful, your book is a wonderful way of understanding how deep our connections are to these animals, and, and you bring us back to a past that makes, I, I, my hat is off to you, I think you have great courage and, and, and just a great vision, and to have shared it with us this way, On the Trail of Genghis Khan, the epic journey through the land of the nomads, epic it is. Tim, I wish you more journeys, I hope all of them aren't quite so physically severe, but please continue to share them with us, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you very much. And, and, and just to let you know, Tigan has recently become a legitimate father. He's given birth to, well, with his wife. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. An Australian uh, Saluki. And oh, a, wow. Um, and so there are nine puppies, seven girls and two boys in Australia at the moment. And oh, I, I'd love to line up for one of those puppies, but it's a bit of a way for them to travel. Yeah. That is so exciting. If you would share some photos of the puppies, I'd love to share them with the listeners. That is so sure. cool. He's quite a boy. Well, you have a great rest of the day, Tim, and thanks again for this marvelous book. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. It was a pleasure.
We'll be right back after a quick word. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussycats and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. It is a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Elizabeth Hodgkins, my absolutely favorite vet. She thinks I say that to everybody, but it's not the truth, Elizabeth. (laughs) You are so interesting. You're so full of knowledge, but you also have such passionate and no reluctance to say them beliefs about our society and animals and expectations and irresponsibility or, or responsibility. And it, it came up in a, in a conversation that we were kind of having ourselves online. A, a gentleman had written to me about a bioavailable aloe and whether or not to use it. And, and I'll quickly just say what that question was because it was kind of interesting to me. But then your answer really talked about the issue of do we value cats less in our society? Is this a society that has cats lower on the totem pole than dogs? And what is society, right? I mean, we're all just individual people. And you had some pretty interesting thoughts about that. So I'll just say that this gentleman wrote in and said that um, it, they, were, they began treating him with aloe juice preparation. Certain elements of bioavailable aloe were beginning to be researched at Texas A&M Vet School back in the 90s. And the results were stopping feline leukemia in its tracks. Is that true, by the way, to your knowledge? Well, you, you know, we've never really found anything that is that effective. I, I would question the, the, the breadth and depth of, yes. of the statement. Right. Um, I have no difficulty uh, believing and agreeing with the fact that there are all kinds of alternative approaches mm-hmm. to dealing with any viral disease where you are supporting the animal's overall health and overall ability to combat in a natural way, combat, right. um, you know, invaders, whether they're bacterial or viral. Right. So it, it's, it's altogether possible that this could be a very, very valuable alternative uh, where we don't have vaccine. We, we don't have good vaccines. And certainly a lot of cats don't get the vaccine and do develop. Let me just say, and I don't want to, you know, make a mess of, of the interview here. You but, never uh, would because everything you say is interesting. Well, you're too kind. But, you know, feline leukemia virus is, is a very difficult virus to wrap our brains around as researchers because it, the, the precursor virus is in a lot of cats. Um, and it, the, the native wild virus generally does not cause disease. It has to mutate within the cat in order to become virulent, in order to become disease-causing uh, for the very, very bad disease of feline leukemia. 
Um, and so we do not understand what all the triggers are to make yes. a virus that, yeah, it doesn't belong there, but it doesn't really cause a lot of harm, suddenly mutate mm -hmm. and become something that is essentially fatal most, if not all of the time. So we've got that kicker. You know, a lot of yes. viruses get into the body. We understand exactly that if they get into the body, they start causing disease and the immune system fights it back or doesn't. And disease results as a result of the, the immune system's capability. This is different. The virus is there. The immune system doesn't pay a lot of attention. Something happens to the virus to make it mutate and become virulent. And, and we believe that the, the animal's body participates in some way in that, that virulent transformation. So this, this is a much more complicated right. viral disease than... Than a little than, aloe juice. <laughs> panleukopenia right. or upper respiratory infection, those sorts of things. Those are straightforward, just like most viral diseases like the head cold, okay? Right. But, but uh, you know, feline leukemia and the disease that that virus can cause is really complicated. Now, is it in um, any way, the way you're describing it, is it in any way similar to our kind of my kind of simplistic lay understanding of cancer that cancer cells are constantly whether in pets or ourselves they're there they're developing and our immune system takes care of these aberrant cells until one or two or six or however many of them become more powerful become immortal if you will cannot be stopped and that's what allows cancer to grow into something malignant that cancer's always they are not in a dormant the way the way you're describing feline leukemia but that cancer cells are constantly being dealt with by our immune system I think that's a good enough analogy really um, and most people would be very surprised to find out that every day cancer cells arise in our body mm -hmm. but we never actually have the disease because it is stamped out by the immune system, and, and that's its natural one of its natural jobs, one yes. of its most important jobs. And so we don't do not understand why exactly uh, in some people these cancer cells manage to to gain the upper hand and do cause disease and can even cause death. So okay, uh, so yeah, that's, that's and that's and that's analogy. and that's a good way to understand it. So we're talking about an awfully important disease, a, a, a potent disease, a a baffling disease. So it, it, you know, when this gentleman is writing and asking whether aloe juice is a stop in its tracks cure feline leukemia, I, I personally would have my doubts that that had ever been proven or was close to being proven. It'd be lovely if it were. But his oh, point yeah. was that the research was abandoned when the pharmaceutical company sponsoring it went out of business, which, by the way, also doesn't make sense to me because alternative medicine, i.e. using things that are just plant matter that aren't patentable, that you can't make money from, are not something that a pharmaceutical business is in the business of dealing with anyway, research-wise, as far as I understand from the human cancer perspective or any human disease. You know, if, if it's something that you can't patent and can't get back your research and development money, it's not like you, you have to go out of business to not do it. Why would you be researching aloe juice in the first place? But, but anyway, that's not exactly the point that we're getting to. But it, it is one of those things to really people have to stop and think. People make this knee-jerk assumption, ah, big pharmaceutical companies are awful. Or big pharmaceutical companies could have done more, but so-and-so stopped them. I just would find it hard to believe they were 
playing around with aloe juice, which is probably just something swell. I mean, we all know that in a lot of cultures where the aloe plant grows, they break it off. You can put it on a burn or a wound. You can drink it. You can eat it. I mean, it has lots of great properties. Absolutely. But his comment was then, they've saved his life and he's a swell cat. And, you know, do some cats live okay with feline leukemia, by the way? Well, they do. Um, feline leukemia, once the virus is detected in the animal's body, once it's determined to be FELV positive, the cat's prognosis can vary all the way from many years of living symbiotically, or if not symbiotically, at least uh, with a sort of a detente uh, with the virus. Yes. It, it happens all the time. We know that cats that That's have... That's what I thought. Yes. So well, I don't think it was the bioavailable aloe juice that suddenly saved this cat's life. And that also happens in human medicine, especially with cancer, where people, you know, back in the day when they were eating ground apricot pits and the person's cancer seemed to have stopped and the apricot pits were given the credit for it. But that cancer may have been ready to stop anyway, or the immune system may have been ready to stop it. But it's then, a much more complicated yeah. process than just, you know, eating the pits or eating the aloe Right, vera. right, exactly. It would be great if it were that simple. It really would. And I'm sure every oncologist on the planet would be glad to have a change of jobs if that would do it, you know? Everybody oh, is very invested in stopping these systemic diseases. But then his comment is, it also speaks to the sad reality that the research in cat health and ailments gets short shrift in a pet culture that is so dog-centric and only focused on putting down those kitties that may have a challenge. Well, that is something that I think is worth talking about. First of all, are we a dog-centric culture in which cats really genuinely are lower on the totem pole? And what does society mean? Is it individual owners? And is that is that um, comment even valid? And, and you had some just amazing things to say about the whole issue of research into cat health and people's attitudes about cats be they researchers or owners. Right. We have to understand that the, the data is very clear. It's not arguable that pet owners, dog and cat owners, uh, they spend a lot more money, a lot more money on their dogs than they do on their cats. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we have to understand that. It's not as though people are clamoring right. to be able to spend yes. more money on their cats. Yes. When, when cats go to the veterinarian, and they have a condition that we already have good interventions for, cat owners are less likely to go for that and to spend as much money as dog owners are. So we do not have a, a population of cat lovers, myself and you included, of course, um, who will pony up the exact same number of dollars for their cats and their dogs. Now, I'm not going to judge that. I, I, I mean, I could, but I'm not going to in this conversation. I'm just going to say that's the reality. Right. And, and you're saying if you're saying when they go to the vet, I'd be even quicker and say if they go to the vet at all. There are people right. who have a 10, 12, 14-year-old cat who has never been to the vet. Right. And they would, of course, have taken a puppy for puppy shots and a booster and then a rabies shot. And then he got something in his paw and then he got something in his ear and then he was limping a little. And all those times they'd be at the vet. So do go on. But I'm, I'm even saying it's amazing that somehow they think that a general maintenance of health or looking into symptoms in a cat with a veterinarian is probably not something they even need to do. Right. 
And, and that's the root problem, let's mm -hmm. face it. It's, that's right. Cat owners were showing up in equal numbers to dog owners. Yes. And were saying, Doc, here's, here's what I can spend. And that number were the same as what the dog owners are saying they can spend. Then I would say there's a legitimate uh, there's a legitimate disparity in research in these two species, and we ought to figure out why. Does do researchers, you know, prejudice against cats? Um, but we can't even get to the point where we ask that question because cat owners are not taking their cats to the vet, and they are not willing to follow a veterinarian's advice about course of treatment nearly as often and to nearly the same financial level that dog owners are. So what I would say to that writer, to, the problem goes way beyond dog-centricness. It goes beyond, it goes to what cat owners are actually telling their veterinarians they want. Yeah. The marketplace in a free market economy always dictates what's available. That's right. You know, if, That's if the right. Dollars are there, mm -hmm. the, the, the research, the exuberance of enthusiasm on the part of researchers, veterinarians, uh, cat groups will, will always try to match what, what the marketplace demands. You know, the American Association of Feline Practitioners has been trying for years now, and most recently in the last two years, very vigorously, to get more cats to go to veterinarians, be diagnosed, and have viable treatments offered and accepted by pet owners. And it's not been a resounding success. The, the PR effort and the educational effort that, that the American Association of Feline Practitioners have been spending money on has not done a, a it's not we're not happy with the success pet owners are kind of hearing about this and going well i don't know i've got x amount of money to spend i've got a dog and a cat and i'm probably going to spend that money on my dog and it's it's difficult to understand um it probably goes to the belief that most pet owners dog and cat owners have that the cat requires less care because the cat is a little bit more seen as more self-sufficient. That's right. And so people, one of the reasons that they, not everybody, but one, one of the reasons that people may choose a cat as a companion is that they have this sense that it's self-sufficient, it's self-reliant. It's kind of like a prepackaged, you know, entity and it doesn't need very much from you at all. And there are right. people who think that in of itself is a desirable trait. And that is, kind of a, a crazy generalization to make, and it is not one that is made lightly. I, I think it's important that you explain your history, uh, Elizabeth, as having owned your own clinic that was feline only. I mean, you spent your uh, the sweat of your brow and a huge investment of your life having a clinic that was totally devoted to cats and owners, and in the end, you burned out for, for the frustration of the people that would finally come, and they would come late in the day in a cat's illness or condition and then right. they didn't want to step up to the bat and say oh okay i could go get hyper radiation for this hyper t and my cat could live another good 12 years i had a neighbor who the cat had a huge tumor on her jaw and her answer was well he's already old he's 12 right he's a siamese he's 12 he's old and it, the dogs went right. to the vet whenever anything yeah we do see dog owners, if we're using cancer as our example, and that's a good one, 
uh, because it is such a dire problem. Yes. Uh, dog dog owners, every once in a while, you know, they'll back away from a five thousand uh, dollar bill to treat an osteosarcoma. That for is which they'll have six tumor. months, and the, for which they have to do an amputation, and the dog. It has about six months of maybe good quality of life. We're not talking about a cure. Exactly. I mean, that's the other amazing thing. Keep that in mind. Exactly. Go ahead. Whereas with that, cats, you can right. cure their conditions. You, you can you cure hyperthyroidism. A, you tell a cat owner that, that their bill is going to be three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, and it's unthinkable. That's and, right. And to, to your point about my practice, I ended up treating many of these cats uh, with a huge subsidy from myself and my and my hospital because I knew I could do some good and often knew that I could even cure a problem. Hyper T is an excellent yes. example yes. because hyperthyroidism will kill a cat in time. Absolutely, it's life threatening, and yet we have some very good curative options. And it was not easy to get my clients, and they were good clients. Many of them came from from out of state. Uh, it was very difficult to get them to spend two, three, four, five thousand dollars to actually cure their cats. So, and it was very frustrating, and it it broke my heart, and so much so that very often I would say, "All right, we're going to do this because I know this cat's a great candidate, and this cat is going yes. to be well and have a normal lifespan expectancy if I treat it." So I'm going to. Uh, having having a cat that was treatable walk out of my clinic knowing it wasn't going to get treated was just not acceptable. It, it just to me. tore you up. I mean, otherwise, yeah. what what did you have all that training for? And and then of course it embitters one towards the human caretaker who's really <laughs> not a caretaker. They're just like you know having to be cohabitating with this animal. And you know, I think another another reason that there may be this perception of kind of the discardability, if you will, of cats. Or there's always another, even though people can love their individual cat, this sense that I can always Absolutely. get another one, which is just something so vile you would never say it about a child or a dog or a husband or a kid or anything. I mean, but people say about their cats, well, yeah, he's, Fluffy's great, but I can always get another cat. There's so many cats around. And, and people that have problems, whatever they may be, whether they're financial or whether they're uh, uh, something, some behavior of the cats that cross it makes them cross they will open the door i mean nobody would ever do that with a dog no. in our society no open a door and say you know what you're going to live outside now yeah. and w no one would ever do it with a dog even a dog they were really mad at a dog that was you know not making them happy making their life miserable they couldn't take care of it properly they just right. wouldn't open the door and go bye-bye no. and so i mean to say that that, oh, it's just awful, these pharmaceutical companies or these veterinary research places or that somehow the finger pointing goes elsewhere, it really goes to the heart of the human-animal bond and that it's it's not quite as powerful with people and their cats as with their dogs for whatever reason. The dependency that dogs have brilliantly created in us and with us, maybe? Well, they work with us. You know, we have thousands of years of history with dogs being partners, shoulder to shoulder, working to accomplish goals that are very human beneficial. And, you know, I, I try to see all sides of it. That's the attorney in me, I guess. Right. And I say to myself that cats do work for us, but historically what they did was they were in the barn and they were mousing. That's they right. They were keeping, keeping the mice and the other vermin from eating all of the corn. That's right. Uh, and that was a useful thing, but never, ever perceived as, as useful as the herding dog that was out 
protecting the sheep. Or the hunting bring, dog that brought home in. the dinner. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So to be fair to everybody, and I try to do that, um, cats form bonds with their owners and they perform very valuable functions. We know they do improve the lives of older people and sick people who, who keep cats as pets. Yes. They, they can soothe our souls and, and make our hearts glad the same way dogs do. But we still, I think, need a few more thousand years with cats to catch up well, to where we have the same regard for them that we do for dogs. Beautifully said, really beautifully said. Thank you so much for sharing these thoughts and, and letting people stop and, and have some thoughts themselves about the pets in their life and maybe reordering priorities or in any case, seeing things from a, through a different lens. Dr. Elizabeth That's Hodgkins, true. you're a wonder. Thank you so much for being with us. I hope you'll be back soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Tracy. Have a great night, everybody. Kiss your kitties and hug a pooch if you have one nearby. We'll talk next week. Bye for now.